you are Locked On Browns, your daily Cleveland Browns podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Good evening, everybody. Episode 181 of Locked On Browns. I'm your host, uh, Jeff Lloyd. Follow me on Twitter at Jeff underscore LJ underscore Lloyd. Always follow the account, guys. We keep it a follow-back account. You guys set this show up, you know, for some great guests. Uh, I know this is one you guys have been asking for for a long time. We've finally been able to put it together. You know, dads with daughters, there's a lot going on. We're able to connect schedules here this evening, and I could not be more excited. Uh, I hope everybody got the chance. If you did not, you need to see the Joe Thomas prep conference from today. Uh, Joe is engaging. You're going to see how he is going to eat up this next part this next chapter of his life. He's just going to eat it up. Uh, normally, offensive line don't come off as engaging and as fun, but Joe is 100% that dude, and he's going to kill it on the next level. Our guest here this evening, the senior football editor of Roto World, one of my favorite guys, Mr. Evan Silva. Evan, first off, I appreciate you for taking the time out here tonight. How's everything going, buddy? It's going great, man. Uh, love talking about the Browns. Love, love uh, talking about Joe Thomas. Uh, and I've, I've binge listened to Locked On Browns podcasts uh, since the end of the uh, NFL regular season. Love your show. You have great guests on. Uh, Browns fans are smart, man. And uh, I, I really respect them as a fan base. They're, they're loyal. They're smart. One of the things when I first came here, and I, I do have some family right outside of Cleveland, and, you know, I know it. And one of the things is, like, look, it, I've always known, you know, Ohio is good football. It's really, really good football. And, you know, a lot of these fans, they know it deep. And now the more people, I, you know, that follow follow me and I interact with, they know the game. They know the game well. And I think that's why the product they're seeing and have been seeing is so difficult for them. But, you know, guys, we could spend a whole hour on that. But we got some stuff we're going to get from Evan here. Evan, uh... Obviously, the press conference today and Joe on a whole, uh, it, it's tough when you lose a foundational piece at any time, but it's love, It's even tougher when you lose a foundational piece who was you know, th- maybe the best player on your roster. And you know, Obviously, there's the influx of youth here in Cleveland, and seeing a guy like Joe go, who would have meshed with whatever young player was brought in because he's that giving of himself. So give some thoughts here on Joe and, you know, I don't know if, obviously you cannot replace him. Maybe they go with the strength and numbers approach. Is that the way they're going to go here? Uh, well, first of all, I mean, Joe Thomas, you know, just the basics. He went ten and a half seasons without missing a single game. Uh, he made the Pro Bowl in ten of his 11 years. So we know he's great. We honor him. We certainly remember him. I think that he will be very much in the mix to be a first ballot Hall of Famer when he is eligible in five years what to me will always stand out personally about joe thomas are the stories that i heard about him from guys i met in college because he's a milwaukee suburbs guy Uh, i went to marquette university in the city of milwaukee Uh, i mostly hung out with athletes there a lot of soccer players some of them played basketball against uh, milwaukee suburb teams and my one buddy danny mullen he was the starting midfielder for the marquette soccer team he would tell stories about Joe Thomas. We're like a year or two older than Joe Thomas, so he's right in our same age range. He went to Brookfield Central, which is a big high school in the Milwaukee suburbs. Danny, my buddy, went to Brookfield East, uh, and Danny was always amazed at how good an athlete Joe Thomas was. 
Uh, Danny would tell me stories about how, how Joe Thomas ran a leg on the Brookfield Central hurdles rate relay team like he was a sprinter crazy uh, yeah he won state in the shot put of course uh he almost went to the university of wisconsin lacrosse they call it uw lacrosse because he wanted to play he wanted to be a two-sport athlete he wanted to play football and basketball but barry alvarez talked him out of it um, and you know mike mayock used the term dancing bear to describe left tackles and that's exactly what Joe Thomas was. I think that as for replacing him, um, it's going to be really tough. I mean, the top in-house candidate right now is Sean Coleman. He was the Browns' worst lineman last year. He played right tackle. He played left tackle, of course, at Auburn. He's six foot six, three oh seven. He's got thirty-five inch arms, so he certainly has the length. He just isn't a very good athlete, and he's not very good in pass protection. So you're looking at Sean Coleman and Spencer Drango as your top mm. in-house options at left tackle. Uh, maybe Brian O'Neill at the top of the second round out of Pitt. I mean, the, the college ranks at this, they don't produce pro-ready left tackles anymore. You go back and look at, like, the last five, six years, very few stud left tackles have, have come out of college. Eric Fisher and Luke Jank, Jack Jokel have both stunk. Greg Robinson was a massive bust. Jason Smith was a massive bust. Jake Matthews has been good. Andrews Pete got moved to left guard. Uh, Cedric Aguehi bust, DJ Humphreys bust, Donovan Smith has not been good in Tampa Bay. Ronnie Stanley has been okay for the Ravens. But Laramie Tunsil, who was supposed to be a lock, he stunk uh, at left tackle last year for the Dolphins. Uh, and then Garrett Bowles, uh, they've, they've even talked in Denver of already moving him to right tackle. So the college ranks are not producing very many pro-ready left tackles and I think that that's a concern I think that right now it comes down to Sean Coleman and, and Spencer Drango well I think with Coleman at least you have you know the experience of the fact that he's got a couple years under his belt uh, Drango I, he tried last year uh, yeah I'll, I'll, you know bless his little heart I think he gave some effort um, yeah, but you see where these guys the schools they're coming from and the offenses that are being run in college and this is going to be a problem for the NFL. There's nothing they can do about it. But we're not getting the traditional left tackle, which is a foundational piece. Now, you know, obviously John Dorsey, you know, you look at the moves he made in Kansas City as far as, you know, top upper echelon draft choices, quarterback, left tackle, cornerback. You know, these are positions that he values, but you're just not going to see him. And look, you only had one left tackle available through free agency, which was Nate Solder. Um, you know, he got paid a ton of money. And everybody, you know, oh my God, look at the money he got. Guys, he had zero competition. He had a resume as a proven NFL guy. And there's no, I mean, we're still here now and we're, what, 30-something days away from the draft. And it's kind of like, well, maybe this guy could be something at left tackle. You know, well, maybe Mike McGlinchey's the number one left tackle in this class. I mean, normally when you're talking left tackles with draft, it's, it's this guy, this guy. It's bang. There's no questions about it. This position, as far as if you're looking for one, it brings nothing but questions, Evan. Yeah, hopefully Joe Thomas gets the itch, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think he's pretty much set where he's where he's headed. But I mean, you know, I, I, look, I, and I appreciate the fact that it seems like he's going to be around, and he has, you know, look. If you want my information, if you want time for me, I'm going to give it to you. And let me tell you something: these guys better be smart, because look, if you do not have, you know, if you're not checking the boxes as far as athletically or build 
at least get the knowledge that you can get from this guy because you know maybe that'll be something you can at least at least get from there now Evan I know you like me I was with starting this I loved the product that I was seeing and it, it's weird to say because the team ultimately ended up 0-16 but it was a teardown it was a strip down the young kids that were brought in were playing hard and I and I look at the defense who did all they could for probably the first 10-11 weeks where the in, until maybe the injury surmounted and maybe the guys just you know it was a little bit tougher to go bell to bell every Sunday but you know we're in a position now where it's been changed incorrectly as far as you know you know the Parcells theory of you know I want to buy the groceries the guy who was buying the groceries was getting it done the guy who was cooking the meal Burn the living crap out of everything, Evan. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that that was the the worst coach team that I've ever seen uh, at any level of sports that I have ever viewed. I mean, Pee Wee football, uh, you know, certainly in the NFL, and I've been covering this sport for over a decade. I've never seen a team so poorly coached put their players uh, in the opposite of, like, the literal opposite of. The, they're the, the best position to succeed. Um, and I, I just, you know, they hit rock bottom from a coaching standpoint. Uh, and I, it, it was so, so bad, man. I mean, I, I did a podcast with Matt Kelly. He's a fantasy mansion on Twitter uh, earlier this off season. And we talked about it. The name of the podcast was schematic atrocities. Uh, <laughs> and I've just, I mean, you know, you can listen to that for, for my views on the coaching staff, uh, both offensively and defensively. It was it was a travesty, man. And I, I felt, by the end of the season, I felt bad for the players. And it got to the point where Duke Johnson and Jason McCourty were, like, standing up for their teammates. Uh, and Duke Johnson knew that the air had just, you know, Deshaun Kaiser was deflated by the end of the season. Uh, and, I mean, I could go on and on for hours about how poorly that team was coached. And it's terrible because, like, I mean, when you have a young roster, you should be passionate about it. And, you know, Deshaun Kaiser, as a 21-year-old kid, you know, being put on that and what went on to him. And for him to have to come from college, where it was basically done to him, to a rookie in the NFL. You know, I understand. You know, I would have never moved on from a 22-year-old quarterback. But I understand why this front office did because... I think the kid was mentally broken, and then you have to worry about whether or not he was broken in his soul. So he's got to go somewhere mm -hmm. where it's not a question of playing right now. It's a question of being around people who are just going to build up his confidence and say, you want to know what, dude? Hey, you threw some nice balls here today. You know, he needs to basically be almost, you know, reborn, if you will. Um, now, it, it got to the point where they had to make a decision that was, like, in the best interest of the kid. And getting the kid away from Hugh Jackson was the best, you know, in the best interest of the, the kid. They happened to get a, a pretty good player uh, in return in Demarius Randall, but they had to get Deshaun Kaiser out of there because that was a toxic situ situation due to Hugh Jackson's handling of this. You know, he's the one of the youngest quarterbacks to ever start in the NFL. Um, it, it was a very sad situation. Like if I was the parent of Deshaun Kaiser. I don't want to beat Hugh Jackson's ass. I could agree with you more. And that, and the thing was, is it's not like he was the number one overall pick or he was drafted in the top 10 or he was drafted in the top 15. 
I mean, you look at the Jets with Christian Hackenberg, similar draft position, they still don't even feel comfortable with him taking a rep two years later. And Deshaun Kaiser, here you go. Whole franchise is yours, kid. Sink or swim. And it's just a terrible philosophy to have. Mm -hmm. Just just terrible. And and this was while David Lee, the quarterback's coach, who Hugh Jackson conveniently fired immediately after the season, David Lee repeatedly uh, before the season said that Deshaun Kaiser was not ready. Even when Deshaun Kaiser had promising moments in the preseason, he certainly did. Uh, He had some great moments in the preseason. Even after those, David Lee was like, "He's, he's not ready. But Hugh Jackson ran him out there week one. And look, I understand that, you know, people will say, oh, he didn't have any other options. You know, Hugh Jackson told Josh McCown to retire and go into coaching. And Josh McCown was uh, a top 15 NFL quarterback last year. And I don't know what happened with Cody Kessler. He had, all things considered, a pretty promising rookie year. I don't know if it was the coaching staff that deflated him, too. But, you know, in his very small sample of playing time in the preseason, the regular season, you know, he, he wasn't the same guy. And I don't know, you know, I, and I look, I realize he was a front office pick because there's no way that Hugh Jackson would have selected Cody Kessler. Nope. You know, Hugh Jackson wants big, tall, strong quarterbacks with big hands and strong arms. And Cody Kessler was a guy who looks good on a spreadsheet. Uh, and I think that he was absolutely, and I, I realized that Hugh Jackson came out and said, trust me on him. But that was when they were still in good graces, when the front office and the coaching staff were still trying to work together. Um, but, you know, I, I just wonder what happened behind the scenes with Cody Kessler because he was a totally, he, he didn't make a, a step forward. He took a step back in his second year after showing an ability to move the offense as a third-round rookie in a, a very unideal situation. And that's the thing. I mean, you wonder if this is just a QB-centric thing where every QB is kind of feeling the heat. And I, I hope this is maybe going to be changed now because all the rumors, you know, obviously were in a lot of the connecting of dots in, you know, Sashi Brown. Probably the, the last great thing he did was the Halloween jumping on the grenade of the trade for AJ McCarron. And I love the fact that the front office basically told you you're not getting your boy and went out and traded for Tyrod Taylor. Look, Tyrod Taylor, he may have his warts. He got his team to the playoffs last year. But I think they kind of showed that, look, we're going to put this team out there and you're going to finally show whether or not you had a grain of salt in coaching. Or, guess what? We're just going to make this place a lot prettier for the next guy we're going to hire. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Okay, now we're going to start getting in a little bit more to the offseason. It's a little bit tough here because, you know, well, I don't know if it's tough here, but obviously John Dorsey and the guys he brought in from Green Bay, they've been handed, they were handed a a basket, a basket full of goodies between draft choices, between cap space, and now they're kind of getting to, you know, play and see the fruition of what was somebody else's plan, somebody else's dream. How, uh, do you like the assemblance of this front office? Um, I think that what we've seen from this new front office is that I mean, we, we've seen what they're going to do. and that's So Sashi Brown left behind a treasure, treasure trove. And the new front office is like, we're going to spend a lot of it immediately. And despite John Dorsey's aggressiveness, I think it's still nothing short of amazing that the Browns still have over $70 million 
left in cap space. They have the most draft capital in the NFL. And that's after adding a top 25 quarterback in Tyrod Taylor, the best slot receiver in the league in Jarvis Landry, and a bunch of win-now free agents, Carlos Hyde, TJ Carey, Chris Hubbard. And I think that people really need to understand and appreciate that the assets that Sashi Brown left behind are the most we've ever seen in NFL history. Uh, Warren Sharp did a great job of uh, documenting uh, just that, that basket that you, you spoke of. It's the biggest basket that any team has ever had in terms of cap space and uh, draft capital. No, no team has ever been this pick rich entering a draft. No team has ever become, begun free agency with this much cap flexibility. And if the Browns don't use it all, and it's almost impossible for them to use it all, they can roll it over to next year. So this is what you call a plan. And, I mean, John Dorsey got fired by the Chiefs less than a year ago because he was terrible at his job. He mismanaged the salary cap. He missed on first-round picks like Eric Fisher and D. Ford. And he got fired by one of the most respected franchises in football in the Kansas City Chiefs. And I, even this guy, I don't think he can mess it up. It's almost a foolproof situation. <laughs> Uh, guys, you're listening to Locked On Browns, episode 181 with Evan Silva. Uh, guys, uh, Locked On Cavs. Uh, Chris Manning's doing a great job over there. If you want to check out uh, w- what's going on in there, I and mean, obviously, you know, Tyrone, uh, Tyrone Lou uh, taking a little step away due to his health. Uh, so Chris got you covered. Any episodes you need to see there. So go ahead and check out Locked On Cavs. Uh, Evan, as we move on further here, I-, I-, I think the trades were important. Because the most difficult thing with this free agent process is with this new front office and selling a 1 in 31 product, you can do that. But the problem is, you know, you know, the stench of the 1 in 31 is still here with the head coach. How do you think they've done with what they've acquired between the trades and the front office? Is it a good job? Could it have been better? But it, I mean, it's a real tough sell with what's gone on here and the fact that you still have that guy here. Yeah, and as we've discussed, I mean, just based on their 2017 performance, the coaching staff is the worst in the league. Uh, and But I, at the same time, like, I don't think that Hugh Jackson is necessarily a terrible coach. I think that he is a smart offensive mind, but his ego and his hubris and his desire to win a power struggle against Sashi Brown last year took precedence over the way that he coached. And, and, you know, it it translated to the team's win-loss record. They lost six games by one score. They lost two games in overtime. Football Outsiders had them as a three-to-five win team. They won zero. Greg Williams is just terrible. But I think that we saw this coaching staff hit rock bottom last year and maybe even proactively coach badly to sabotage Sashi. And and there's, there's only one way to go from from there considering their 2017 performance as for free agency at the end of the day guys want to get paid the browns haven't struggled to lure free agents to cleveland despite that being a narrative oh no one's going to sign with the browns they got the best guard on the market last year in kevin zeitler they got a great young center in jc treader kenny Britt stunk in the end but he was a top five free agent wide receiver last year and he signed with cleveland and jason mccordy He's a longtime veteran in the league. He signed with the Browns for at very cheap price, and he had the best year of his career. Of course, the Browns essentially cut him uh, after that. <laughs> uh, but I think that it's really overblown that notion that free agents won't sign with the Browns. The Browns signed a, a 
ton of free agents every year, and they've gotten over the past couple of years some of the best free agents in the league. It, it, it is interesting how they've been able to do that, and the McCourty thing was definitely odd because even the contracts that you know the couple of guys they signed him to, nobody was here on mega money. So it was almost like you had yourself where, look, it was five, six guys, and look, it was kind of like a it put into a position of, look, best man wins. But, you know, then they started to pull the plug on a couple of guys. You know, I guess McCourty maybe it was an age thing. Obviously, another cornerback shipped out today to Seattle for a 2020 conditional seventh-round pick, whatever that may be. Um, Evan, do you think free agency is over? Is there somebody else out there on that market that could fit this team's bill right now? They should make a priority? I think that just looking at their roster, they could afford to make a few more moves. I think that bringing back Terrell Pryor to stretch the field opposite Josh Gordon is a sign that John Dorsey should seriously consider, and Hugh would certainly be all for it. Um, at the same time, it seems like John Dorsey's trying to assert himself as the Browns' clear-cut power broker over Hugh Jackson, and that's evidenced by moves like trading for Tyrod Taylor well, I think it's Ashi Brown wanted to acquire last year, but Hugh did not. And by moving on from veterans that the coaching staff loved, or presumably loved, like Danny Shelton and Jason McCourty. I mean, those were the two of their better veteran players, and the, the coaching staff gets attached to two veteran players. At the end of the day, man, it's just a really unhealthy environment still in Cleveland. The GM doesn't have the power to fire or hire the coach. He has to work with the coach that Jimmy Haslam picks. Uh, everyone reports to the owner, who, by the way, just got investigated by the FBI for ripping people off to make millions of dollars. Uh, and I realized that Jimmy Haslam got off, or he seemed, it seems like he was cleared, but his entire organization, the flying private J or whatever, got exposed. Uh, and it's actually amazing that the NFL had zero reaction to this. At the very least, based on the investigation, we know that Jimmy Haslam was putting people who were racist and sexist and literally ripping people off into very high-ranking decision-making positions. We see all the time how much it matters having a good or bad owner in the NFL. Everything starts at the top. <laughs> I, I love the way you put that, Evan. And it, it is funny. And, you know, obviously you saw, you know, Jimmy uh, Haslam obviously had his hand down in Tennessee, which, you know, University of Tennessee, which turned into an absolute mess as far as a coaching search. You know, down there. Got yeah, it. they hate him down there too. The the, the Tennessee people, they, they hate Jimmy Haslam. Well, I mean, and I got to be honest with you to the folks, and I've said this a couple times here at the University of Tennessee. If you think Greg Schiano wasn't good enough for your program that has done nothing in the SEC for I can't remember how long, I got news for you guys. Look, Greg Schiano is a mean old cuss, but he would have cleaned up your program and they would have been flying straight. That is the one thing he does bring to the table, is Greg Schiano. Uh, we're going to go a little bit more to the positive approach here now. Look, uh, April 26th is coming. Five picks in a top 64. Uh, Sashi, part of the plan there. Thank you, Sashi. Uh, what do you think... Well, I, I guess I'll go with this first here. With the willingness to move on from the day three picks, is that maybe a statement or an indictment on this 2018 draft class that maybe the meat and the potatoes is top 100, or in this case, top 64 or better? Yeah, I'm honestly not done with my research on defensive players in the draft. Um, I'm, I'm pretty much done with my offensive uh, reviews of every player. Uh, but I couldn't give you a solid opinion on whether this draft is top-heavy or deep. 
but for sure my initial sense is that it is top heavy and i think that's mostly driven by the fact that there are four or five prospects who look like possible franchise quarterbacks um but i think that like minka fitzpatrick i think that he's overrated i think that there is a little bit of reason to think that bradley chubb could be uh, overrated uh saquon barkley i mean i expect him to be great but he's not a great inside runner at all and if he gets drafted by a dumb team I think that we could be talking about Saquon Barkley as a disappointment down the road. At Penn State, one of the great things that they did with Saquon Barkley is that they knew exactly how to use him. They got him outside the tackles. They used him a ton in the passing game. He had almost 60 receptions last year. They put him in space. He's a big back who almost moves like LaShawn McCoy. He's not a guy that you want to bang inside the tackles. You don't want to use him in the eye formation. He opens your offense up. Uh, and, and, you know, coaches in the NFL are very, very stubborn. Uh, they really believe in their scheme. Uh, and if he goes to the wrong team, I think that he could be uh, a disappointment. But as for the overall talent in the draft, I'm not done uh, studying the draft class, you know. Uh, and so I, I don't have a great answer on whether it's super top-heavy or, or super uh, deep. Uh, but it does seem to me right now like it's top-heavy. Well, I think the thing with Minka Fitzpatrick, and look, you know, it's tough for me to bring a negative light to a Jersey guy, and I love Minka, but the problem is, is when your biggest calling card is is your versatility, that's where it might hurt you. And you know, this is a phrase that I know Aaron Nagler and a bunch of other guys is, show me how he wins, show me what he does. It, it, it you know, what, what is his calling card? And I think that's what's kind of hurting Minka here. And even himself, when he you know spoke at the combine, he says, "I'm really good closer to the line of scrimmage. I'm really good good in that nickel position." I think everybody kind of listened to that, and everybody just kind of said, "Huh." And and everybody kind of had a little hesitation. And you want to know what? Wait a minute. Now is this is this a top five pick? Is this a top ten pick? And you know, I kind of hate it for Minka, but you know, this is a guy now where you know. It almost seems weird to say, but his top 10 status is probably in jeopardy. Bradley Chubb, I love, and I think he can be a a solid end in this league. But a guy like Harold Landry out of Boston College, who's a better athlete, who's quicker off the ball, is more of the, I I don't want to say he's more of the pass rusher, but I think if you're going to go down to whether or not it's, it's sacks versus one versus the other, I think you're going to get an equal amount there. So it's interesting. And the Saquon Barkley thing is, look, I think he is a fantastic back. But when you talk about 60 receptions and close to 600 yards, and this talk of him at one or four for Cleveland, uh, there's talks of an extension with Duke Johnson. And Duke Johnson does this and does it really well. And if you want to go by his 73 receptions last year versus Jarvis Landry's 100, he actually showed more big playability than Jarvis Landry did. Yeah, I watched a ton of Minka. I did a, a podcast with Elliot Christ. Oh, uh, my boy. For, yeah, he's he's excellent. I mean, he's one of the best, like, game film uh, analysts that, that there are, I believe. Uh, we did a podcast on Minka Fitzpatrick. I watched, like, five or six games on him. Um, you know, he was not what I expected. I mean, people, you know, when I, when I read about him before I'd watched him, people were saying that he's like Jalen Ramsey. And he's not like that at all. He didn't even play safety at Alabama. And he certainly didn't play outside corner. I think that he played nope. 13 snaps 
at outside corner all of last year. He was a slot corner and he was a linebacker. He actually played linebacker more than he played uh, outside corner or safety. Um, and, you know, he was he was almost like a Troy Polamalu slash Tyran Matthew. Uh, and, you know, and then he went to the combine and he wasn't, he didn't blow it up athletically. So you wonder, is he athletic enough to, to, uh, to move to outside cornerback? I, I love, like, he, he has a lot of, like, quickness. Um, and his, he has an ability to, like, break on the ball faster than the receiver that's being targeted. And that's really, really special. I think. I think that that would—that's maybe his calling, calling card. But when I watched him play, he reminded me of like Kenny Vaccaro uh, coming out of Texas, and he was like very far from a Jalen Ramsey. And so when I watched him play, I was like, this guy—he's a good player, but he seems like a middle first-round pick. I think Kenny Vaccaro was like number 15 or number 17, and he did not look like a top-five pick to me at all. Well, and also the thing, that was the thing, because everyone wanted to go with the Minka-Jalen thing. And look, I'm a huge Florida State guy, and I thought Jalen Ramsey should have been kept at free safety. But the thing was, is you had a year of tape of him playing cornerback on the outside. Obviously, I lost on this one, because Jalen Ramsey is killing it right now. But the other thing was, though, is if you're going to still say outside corner, Denzel Ward, Jyrie Alexander, these guys you had nothing but cornerback tape on, and you had better athletic traits, which is what you're looking for on those guys on the outside. So if that was your calling card for Minkin to be a top five, top ten player, that's now gone. I do think one thing, and it, it, it's never going to show up in a combine, it's not going to show up in a pro day, and this is what maybe Minka has going for him, it's a coachability factor, where the coach is going to sit down and, look, I got something special for you this week. This is what I need you to eliminate. This is what I need you to take care of. I think he does bring that type of presence, but that's not really going to help his draft position type of thing in that essence. Yeah, and as for Bradley Chubb, um, and I need to watch him more uh, myself, but uh, he, he, when I watched him the first couple games, I thought that he was like a Brian Arakpo type. And I know that we convince ourselves every year that guys are locks, that guys are absolute lock difference makers, you know, and Brian Arakpo was, I think, the 13th overall pick in the draft. Uh, and he's had a good career, uh, but, you know, as like a straight line, kind of like a power rusher, really good against the run, you know, certainly a three down player, but I don't think that he is like, you know, a next level, um, you know, like uh, necessarily like a, like an all pro caliber edge rusher. Uh, and he had a really bad three cone time. I heard him bad. Um, and I talked to, yeah, I talked to uh, Justin Mosqueda. Justice. Uh, who, yep. Justice, yes, I'm sorry. He'll be on Justice tomorrow night. Justice one of the best D-linemen analysts that there are. I was like, hey, Justice, you know, what do you think about um, Bradley Chubb's three-cone? Does that bother you at all? Because I know he does the force players, and he, he's an, he definitely uses analytics. Uh, and he wasn't too worried about it, so that made me feel a little bit better. But um, I, I think that I, – I look, I love Bradley Chubb, and I think that if the Browns took him at four, I think it would be fine – but I think that they need to trade down from that number four pick. All right. Well, now you're leading just to the next question. So we'll hear. We got one four thirty three thirty five sixty four. Uh, look, I mean, and everybody, whether it's Saquon Barkley or trade number one, shut up, guys. It, 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 it's not moving. A quarterback is going to be taken at one. Evan, go ahead. You're on the clock. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that you definitely take a quarterback at one, and that and the definite and it was I think it was interesting at one point to talk about just to talk about the possibility of not taking a quarterback at one, uh, but the definitiveness of that being your approach increased when the Jets traded up to three. You do not want to be picking up other dumb team scraps. You want to take your franchise quarterback at one, and you could sit him behind Tyrod Taylor. Sam Darnold reminds me a lot of Matthew Stafford. Uh, he has, I think he has the highest floor-ceiling combination in this class. Baker Mayfield has a similar ceiling to Sam Darnold, I think, maybe even higher. But I don't think the NFL teams will value him as highly because of the size issue. Josh yep. Allen, from a floor standpoint, he has an out-of-the-league floor you know, within the next five years. Uh, and I think that Josh Rosen is a solid bet but not a prolific prospect so I think that you take Darnold or Mayfield at one and I don't think that they'll take Mayfield at one so you take Darnold at one and then you have to trade down at number four and your goal is to acquire an additional first round pick in 2019 I think that just looking at the Browns roster right now I think it's clear that they need one more pass rusher Uh, they need an outside edge rusher you can move Miles Garrett and Emmanuel Agba inside on passing downs the Browns obviously need a left tackle uh, they need another outside corner to push Jamar Taylor, I think. And I think that taking another shot on a wideout makes sense because Josh Gordon and Corey Coleman have been pretty unreliable, both for different reasons. Uh, but I think that it, it's really important to remember that at the end of the day, Sashi Brown set this team up to have two first-round picks every year for the foreseeable future. That's something that they could do. They could set themselves up to have a, two first-rounders every year going forward And I get that John Dorsey's philosophy is different, but having an annual edge on the draft is one way of establishing an edge on the rest of the league. And that's what this is all about, man. You want to establish competitive advantages in every way possible. We saw the Eagles, that they did it. They went for it on fourth down. Um, The the Browns are in a position where they can uh, acquire two first-round picks every year for the foreseeable future. You can use analytics to evaluate draft prospects and make better uh, game day decisions. These are market inefficiencies that the rest of the NFL is not exploiting. So if you can exploit them, you can create an edge. And that is the way to uh, leapfrog up you know, up the, the ladder in the NFL. And the Eagles showed us a great template for that. The Jaguars have also shown us a, a great template for that. Yep. Um, it was in a, in a very different way. Uh, but they, they were another team. Their roster was built by analytics guys. Tony Khan is a guy that, you know, he goes, Tony Khan, the son of uh, uh, Shad Khan, he goes to the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference every year. You know, they were, they've been using analytics from the get-go since Dave Caldwell took over as the GM five years ago, and they didn't, you know, they happened to make their jump in the year that Tom Coughlin came on as, like, the VP, and, they, you know, he was able to kind of, like, set in, in motion a philosophy uh, and they took the, the running back at number four but up until that point the roster that they had built and so much of that core young talent those guys were added by a front office that was employing analytics and that's the thing uh you know because they have most of those pieces in place as far as the defensive line is concerned i, I think they can add to it so no obviously now if if they were to drop from Obviously, look, Buffalo is the team who's probably looking to get to this top four. So, four to 12 and whatever exchange of picks with a 19 first mixed in, you're in? 
Absolutely, absolutely. There are other teams, too, that can come up. Uh, the Cardinals, they can certainly come up. Um, i got to pull up the... Uh, Miami's at 11. The, yes, Miami at 11. Uh, I mean, there are teams that want quarterbacks. I think Miami, it's really no secret at this point that Baker may, that they want Baker Mayfield. And he wants Miami. <laughs> right, yeah, he put that in the Instagram post or whatever. Uh, but they're going to have opportunities to trade down. Again, I think that Bradley Chubb would be a solid pick. I think that Minka Fitzpatrick actually would be a bad pick at number four. Uh, and they might even be able to trade down and, and get him like at 12 or at 11. Yep. Uh, because I don't think that he's going to go as high as people anticipate. Uh, but I think that ultimately their goal should be to continue to use these assets to continue to give themselves more assets. Right now on paper, I mean, look, I know that this sounds ridiculous. They won zero games last year, okay? They should have been a three to five win team. Uh, Mike Clay has them as a top 12 roster in the NFL. I don't, Mike Clay of ESPN, you know, formerly a pro football focus, one of the yep. best guys at predicting uh, how NFL teams are going to perform in the future. I mean, he's like a, le- a legit like forecaster. And he has the Browns right now as a top 12 roster in the NFL. Um, you are in really good position to be a, like push for a wild card spot in 2018, uh, but you also want to continue to think about the future. No, I do love that. Now we're going to trip on down. I mean, uh, you know, obviously trip down over, you know, to the second round. Is this is this something we're going to go offensive and just continue to add to the skill position because this team does need to add points? And do you look at a guy who could maybe be your next left tackle? We're not going to say being your next Joe Thomas because that just ain't happening. But you know, is there a name or two? You know, whether, you know, obviously left tackle wise, but is there a name or two, you know, skill position wise, Evan, that you're looking for? And I do agree, because the one thing I kept saying about the wide receiver position is I love Corey Coleman. He was my number one wide receiver during his draft class, but you have two years now with a seven week, you know, absence due to injury. And look, Josh, as much as he is fantastic and is a dog, he's the ultimate wild card. So you need insurance policies for both. I agree. The, the problem with the wide receivers is this isn't a very good class for wide receivers. Um, I mean, I can see a scenario where we don't see a single wide receiver go in the first round. I know that Calvin Ridley goes early in like mock drafts, um, but he wasn't very good at the combine. He's not a big guy at all. He wasn't particularly productive. He's old coming out of college. Uh, so there are a lot of red flags on Calvin Ridley. To me, he's like a really scary draft pick. He reminds, I mean, uh, he reminds me a little bit of Kevin White coming out of West Virginia. I now know that Kevin White has just been decimated by injuries. You, you know, So he's a really tough guy to evaluate uh, at this point in his career. Uh, but that's kind of like the, the profile that uh, Calvin Ridley has and, and with uh, significantly worse athleticism in size than Kevin, that, that, than Kevin White had coming out. Uh, but I, you know, James Washington, Christian Kirk, DJ Moore, you know, there are some solid guys that I think – uh, will be in play at the top of the, of the second round. I mentioned Brian O'Neill as a left tackle candidate from Pitt. I think that he is someone that the Browns should have in their crosshairs. Um, th- those are just a couple of names that, that come to mind. I, you know, I think that they're not going to take a running back. I, there was a point in time, certainly before they signed Carlos Hyde, that I thought that Darius Geis would be an awesome pick at 33 or 35. 
love Darius Geis. Uh, but I don't think that that's really in play anymore. I think that if they're going to take an RB, it's going to be a lot later in the draft. And they can still get a good one because of the depth of the running back class in this draft. Well, and you look at obviously what Dorsey did, you know, obviously, you know, last year with, you know, Kareem Hunt ended up there. You look at the Green Bay influence, uh, you know, obviously with Highsmith and Wolf, it's never been a value position there. So it's going to be interesting how that works out. And, you know, they may value what Duke does. And everybody says he's not going to get a bigger role, but who's to say the front office won't dictate that by not drafting the competition? And, you know, Carlos Hyde, I think it's a little bit underrated because I think Carlos Hyde, you know, I think there were times where he was good, but he was good on a really crappy team. Yeah, which, by the way, is really difficult to do as a running back. Yes. Uh, That's very, very difficult to do. Um, I love Carlos Hyde. I love the potential that this team has uh, in the running game. Uh, we've seen it over and over, time and time again, for the last like decade and a half, how uh, athletic, dual-threat quarterbacks uh, can spike the efficiency of your running game, whether it be with Vince Young and Chris Johnson, even Jake Locker and Chris Johnson, uh, Alfred Morris and RG3, um, Tyrod Taylor and bunch of different running backs, uh, Carlos Williams, uh, and Mike Gillisley. I mean, Tyrod Taylor got Mike Gillisley paid, you know, by the Patriots. So um, having that, that dual threat aspect and being able to run a lot of bootlegs and, um, you know, deception, uh, I think that that gives this running game a lot, a lot of upside. And they have field stretchers. I mean, this is not necessary. And Tyrod Taylor, when he's been at his best, he's been an excellent deep ball thrower. Absolutely. In 2015, he had, had the second best passer rating on throws 20-plus yards downfield in the NFL. Now, the Bills stripped down his receiver core, got rid of Sammy Watkins, got rid of uh, Robert Woods, got rid Goodwin. of Marquise Goodwin, gave him guys that couldn't separate. You know, you look at on next-gen stats – uh, they ranked all the NFL teams in terms of average yards of separation from their wide receiver core. The Bills were 32nd in the NFL. They did not, you know, where they were unable to generate any separation at the wide receiver position. And so Tyrod Taylor had his worst season as the passer last year. But in 2015, when Sammy Watkins was healthy, uh, Tyrod Taylor was a big time, big play threat down the football field. And the, the Browns have that element with Josh Gordon. I, again, I would love to see them add one more field stretcher, uh, whether it be Terrell Pryor or like James Washington uh, out of Oklahoma State. Okay. Uh, guys, if you're listening on the Megaphone app, I do appreciate it. Uh, if you need to subscribe, whether it's iTunes, whether it's Spotify, guys, I'd appreciate that even more. Go ahead, leave the five-star review. And before we start putting this to bed, the give me your favorite Sleeper that maybe people aren't talking about on offense in this draft class. Um, that's a good one. Give me a second. Question is only asking Evan for one. <laughs> no, um, let me like pull up a list of guys. Sorry, can you like edit edit this part out? Don't worry about it, bro. We're good. Okay. Who would even be considered a sleeper? All these tight ends are big names. Uh, I watched a ton of RBs. Let me look at the RB list. Uh, 
list. Um, Rashad Penny is not a sleeper anymore. Not anymore. No. Um, He's fun, though. Home, uh, you got to love the home run, guys. I love him. He's awesome. A home run RB are fun. And he, he breaks tackles, and he ran well at the combine. He ran really fast for how big he is. I mean, he has a great, like, speed score, you know, size-adjusted speed. Uh, that has been a very predictive uh, indicator for uh, running backs historically. I'm looking at some wideouts here. One of my biggest ones is Fountain from Northern Iowa, because I watched him take my mo- I, I watched him take my mammoth U boys to the woodshed in the playoffs. Interesting, interesting. He's it's terrible. He wasn't at the combine. He would have tore it up. He was like an eleven five broad guy. Oh my goodness gracious! Uh, I like uh, Kiki Kuti. He's as, interesting. As like a, yeah, as like a super productive. Uh, slot receiver prospect. Um, I think that Antonio Callaway is much more talented than uh, what he was able to show at Florida. And now here's here's the interesting yeah. with him is now you have John Dorsey and John Dorsey mm-hmm. once a year will will mm-hmm. draft a Mulligan. Yes, he will draft guys absolutely that uh, that that has some off field issues. You're, you're exactly right. I wish that Sim, Simi Cobbs would have ran a little bit better at the combine. I really liked him uh, as like a sort of poor man's Mike Evans, but it's scary when a dude's running four six eight, you know. So, um, sorry, I, don't, I guess I don't have any great sleepers, unfortunately. But we had the opportunity at least to talk about a couple of prospects. Of course, of course. Now, Evan, uh, what do you got in store for everybody over the next? Uh, well, it's going to be close to five weeks now. Yeah, Josh Norris and I will be doing like uh, team needs for every team in the NFL, and Josh Norris will do a team-by-team mock draft for every team. We, we do that every year. And what I'm really working on for the next month leading up to the draft, next month and a half or so, is just working on the defensive players uh, and you know watching a bunch of cornerbacks. Uh, we do a lot of fantasy content you know, at Roto World. Of course. Our, that's the basis for a lot of what we do. And we want to know how good cornerbacks are uh, because in fantasy football, you know, making start sit decisions on a weekly basis, playing daily fantasy, you want your wide receivers to be running routes against cornerbacks uh, that are vulnerable uh, because they're going to be, they're going to have, you know, much better chances at, at being productive in those particular games. So I, and I love watching cornerbacks. They're super, super athletic. You know, it's they're, they're 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 fun dudes to watch. You know, they're they're every every single play they're competing against another great athlete. Uh, so I'm I'm excited to really dive into the defensive players. I've uh, you know, uh, watched a few so far: Minka, Bradley Chubb. You know, some of the really bigger names. But digging into guys like Jair uh, Alexander, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to to look at all those guys. Well, the biggest thing for me, though, is, is I just love the wide receiver-cornerback matchup. Look, the former college wide receiver and me with you know the cornerback play. It's the, the constant joying and the, and the mm-hmm. back and forth. And look, you know, I, you know, Odell Beckham versus Josh Norman that day, I know a lot of people hated it, but that's just what happens. Like, it, yep. Sometimes it's just it gets under your skin, and you just can't have it when you've got you know two alpha dogs going at it. And you know, for me, the smaller guy, I don't get it when the 330-pound guys are going at each other like dogs. 
I do get it when the smaller guys are going at each other like dogs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, the cornerback position too is so interesting because you can get beat on a on a specific play. You you have to have no memory. I mean, you have to have the shortest memory possible. You have to bounce back, get right back up after allowing a forty yard reception, getting beat by the dude that it is your responsibility to cover. Uh, and then you have to get right back up and not get – you don't have – there's no time to to pout, you know, and those guys get weeded out quickly. They don't make it to, to Division One football. The guys who can't overcome and have a short memory, they don't make it this far. Uh, so it's it's a really interesting position to watch. Jairi Alexander is going to be your guy then, I'm telling you right now, because he can get beat for 35 and he's still going to run his mouth all day long and you better get a catch <laughs> on awesome. him. You better get a catch on him early. Because otherwise, he's got your ear, and he's going to shut you down. Uh, you know, please, by all means, you know, elbow your buddy Norris. He keeps ignoring my tweets. We need to get him on here once. I but, will. guys, this has been Locked On Browns, episode 181, with uh, Mr. Evan Silva, the senior football editor at Roto World. Roto World, one of my favorite guys. Uh, does a fantastic job. Uh, does help me a lot fantasy-wise. So, Evan, thanks for that. So, go ahead and follow him. Guys, follow the show at Locked On Browns. Guys, as I said... The show is a follow-back account. You guys have brought me a ton of guests. You guys suggest the guests you want to hear. I do my best to get them for you, so I do appreciate that. Follow me personally, at Jeff underscore LJ underscore Lloyd. Uh, I'm your host, Lockdown Brown, Jeff Lloyd. Guys, it's a pleasure. we got a monster week coming. Big, more guests coming. Justice Muscata tomorrow. Uh, Evan name-dropped a ton of guys. A lot of those guys are in the plans here as well. So, guys, can't thank you enough for listening. We'll be back tomorrow night. Let's go Browns.